morning, everyone. And firstly, uh, apologies that I'm not preaching on Palm Sunday. Um, Palm Sunday is very important in the Christian calendar. And I remember for several years, Penelope and I had two big phoenix palms in our front yard, and they were denuded and strewn across the Sunday school floors. And but but I I'm kind of with C.S. Lewis that if in fact we want to really acknowledge Jesus as the, the Lord and Saviour and celebrate that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we have to believe what C.S. Lewis calls the whole show. And for me, the whole show, the centrepiece of it is the resurrection. And I want to pre preach mainly on the resurrection. So that's why I'm preaching on the resurrection on Palm Sunday. Switch it from there, <laughs> we need to know that he really did triumph over sin and death. Otherwise, as Paul says in a minute, why, why bother? Otherwise, I'd be one of uh, Rob's atheistic Christians, you know, who believed the bits that, that suited me, but didn't really believe what C.S. Lewis calls the whole show. Charles Spurgeon, who probably had more sermons published than anyone else in history, even though he lived in the 1800s, and in fact, uh, his, one of his twin sons became the senior pastor at um, uh, the Big Baptist Church at the top of Queen Street in Auckland. He said this, The heart of the gospel is redemption, and the essence of redemption is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. They who preach this truth preach the gospel. And whatever else they may be mistaken, but they who preach not the atonement, whatever else they declare, have missed the soul and substance of the divine message. And when I became a Christian at Victoria University in 1968, about 1968, that was the key thing. I was one of those terrible people who questioned everything. And I had to believe in the reality of the physical resurrection and as I'll outline in a moment, um, I had a personal friendship with Lloyd Geary, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Let's let's talk about the um, First Corinthians 15. Can we switch? The passages that Penelope read to me are pure gold in terms of why we're here and what we're all about. First, Paul lays out the bare facts. As, as I've said at the bottom, no ifs, no buts. No maybes, no, no other possibilities. And Paul says, For what I received, what he heard firsthand, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So no buts, no ifs, no maybes, the, the simple gospel. And there are two lines of evidence. Next, next slide. First of all, Paul refers to the Old Testament scriptures. He said, according to the scriptures, and here's one of them. This is from Isaiah 53, and many of you will know this, and it features in a number of our hymns and songs. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that's the first piece of evidence Paul refers to. That's the reference to, the, to Christ the Redeemer and resurrection in the Old Testament. And there are a number of passages like that, that that you could quote and some of them he quotes. The second line of evidence is um, eyewitnesses. There are at least six appearances listed by Paul. But the other Gospels actually give more. For example, Paul doesn't talk about the experience of disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus walked along with them and they weren't even aware that he was there until he opened, the scriptures say he opened their eyes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says, and that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. So Paul was able to talk to those people who had personally experienced Christ's post-resurrection appearance, but some of whom had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared, appealed, he appeared to Paul. So Paul says two lines of evidence that, that count for the physical reality of the resurrection, the, the witness of the Old Testament scriptures and the personal witness of the people who appeared to the apostles. And next, next slide. And then he has this amazing debate with himself or with those who are listening who are saying otherwise. And he says, look, if Christ didn't really rise from the dead, these are all the other things that follow. If Christ is not raised, verse 14, then our preaching is useless. Why would Rob or, or me or anyone else even bother to get up here? Because if you remove the central pillar of our faith, which is Jesus rising from the dead, one of the songs we just sang said, completely and forever won by Christ emerging from the grave. Completely and forever won by Christ emerging from the grave. More than that, our faith is futile, in verse 14. And we're even said to be liars and false witnesses. I was once in an Anglican church in England, um, and I went along, and the vicar, uh, you know, we all recited the um, Apostles' Creed, which talks about, you know, the resurrection of the dead. And I had a chat to the um, to the vicar after his sermon, where he said something like, oh, well, you know, we don't have to believe that it actually really happened. <laughs> and I said to him, look, with all due respect, why, did, why, if you don't believe it happened, why do we bother reciting the Apostles' Creed, which says it really did happen? So there's an awful lot of hypocrisy. What's the point of our faith if we remove the central pillar of it? If we remove the idea of Jesus' physical resurrection, why bother continuing to believe? Not only that, but verse 19 said, those who, who have died are lost. And I don't believe that with all my heart, as I'll outline in a moment. I don't believe that those I love are lost forever. I, I don't know how and why. I don't understand the, the geography or the, or the history of, of faith, but somehow I know that those people who've gone before me, I will meet again. And I believe that with all my heart. Because the, you see, the opposite is that I will ne never see them again, that death finishes in the cemetery or the crematorium. And I find the, the message of the gospel, that Jesus rose and we will be reunited, is far more compelling than the alternative, which is nothingness. They've just, they've just gone. So, verse 19, those who have died are lost. And verse 19 again, we are of all men most to be pitied, and women. You know, we're, we're charlatans. 
and people should pity us if we believe this lie. All our sacrifices, what's more, are in vain. All those missionaries, you know, who've given their lives. And, and, and Paul says, you know, I fought wild beasts, and did I do that for nothing? So, verse 32, to, to go on from the passage that Penelope read. So if Christ is not raised, let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. We, we may as well not bother living a Christian life or trying to, uh, because it doesn't matter. So it's a wonderful passage where Paul was debating um, what, was, what was going on. Right, next slide. Now during the 1960s when I was uh, a student, there was a man who some of you will know well, um, Professor Lloyd Gehring, who was head of Knox Theological College in Dunedin, Presbyterian uh, training institution for all the ministers. And Professor Gehring wrote two very influential books, God in the New World and Resurrection Symbol of Hope. And to, to sum up um, Gehring's views, basically he was saying, well, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead in any physical or anatomical sense, but he left such an impression on those he knew, particularly the disciples, that, quote, he could be said to have risen from the dead. And then there was a huge, unfortunate heresy um, uh, trial that went on. It was almost like burning witches, which was totally unnecessary, and Gehring chose to resign from Knox College, and he came to Victoria University. And when I was a young staff member in the early 70s, 1972, I think, or 73, I did Lloyd Gehring's um, religious studies course. He became professor of religious studies. And I actually got to know him. He was one of the best lecturers I ever had. He was an amazing teacher. And I used to have coffee with a group of academics at 10 o'clock if we didn't have a lecture. And, and one day Lloyd Gehring was in there and he said to me, Richard, you, you, you read my books because I had several conversations with him. You know, what do you think of what, I, what I'm saying? And I said, well, Lloyd, I, I have a huge respect for you and for your scholarship and your teaching, but if that's all there is, if it's just an impression that Christ left, left, if he didn't really rise from the dead, then I'd rather be a healthy heathen. It just wasn't enough for me. And, and I said here, um, this is not merely an argument about physical resurrection, but about the plausibility of a miraculous faith. And that miraculous faith needs to be put alongside what I've called an emasculated faith. If you take away, if you take away a, a Bible that's believable, if you take away miracles, if you take away all the supernatural that we believe in, there's, there's not a lot left. So why bother? So that's the that's the central piece of Paul's argument, you know. We, and, and it was brought home to me during that controversy um, and, and friendship with Lloyd Gehry, who's still alive, by the way. He's over a hundred. Amazing man. Actually, in reading his two books, I came across something that I didn't realise and I suspect it may have impacted uh, Gehring's views, and that is that he both his, he was married twice and both his wives died uh, quite young. And, and that, as those of you who've lost a spouse will know, can have a huge impact on your, um, on your views on life. Not only that next slide, we are in very good company holding on to the centrality of the death and resurrection of Christ. And there's a couple of heavy hitters here. Karl Barth, who some of you who've studied theology will have read. Jesus has risen is the central affirmation of the whole of the New Testament. 
This is the content of the, of the Easter history, the Easter time, the Christian proclamation, both then and at all times. This is the basis of the existence of the church. So remove Jesus' resurrection and a whole house of cards falls down. Or A.N. Wilson, these are both quoted in Ron Hayes' little book, by the way, um, Finding the Forgotten God. I meant to bring a copy of it, but if any of you want a copy, Ron Hayes, New Zealand's C.S. Lewis. His apologetics, written in Kiwi style with Kiwi language, is a brilliant little book. And if you know anyone who wants a copy, I've got a, a dozen, and I can give you one for nothing. In the past, I have questioned the veracity of the Easter story and suggested that it should not be taken literally. But the more I read the story, the better it seems to fit and apply to the human condition. Easter confronts us with an historical event set in time. We are faced with the story of an empty tomb, of a small group of men and women who were at one stage hiding for their lives and at the next brave enough to face persecution for their belief in the risen Christ. The resurrection which proclaims that matter and spirit are mysteriously conjoined is the ultimate key to who we are. Amazing passage on, on how important it is. But we can do that or we can Next, next slide, we can, we can make it personal. Some of you will know that just a few short weeks ago I lost probably my dearest male friend, Ian Milne, Dr. Ian Milne, to a sudden heart attack. And it was a huge, uh, it was a huge hit. I feel like when I go walking now, because he was my walking friend, I've lost half a leg or a foot or something. It's just not there. And I want to ring him up and ask him all kinds of questions. But the key thing was, and I participated in his funeral service and gave part of the eulogy. When I went to look at his dead body, I knew, as I'd known before with other members of my family, that it wasn't him. He'd gone. He'd gone to be with the, with the Lord that he really loved. Um, that was a, a reality that was personal, not just philosophical or theological. As I looked quietly at his dead body at home, I knew again that it wasn't him, he'd gone to be with the Lord. And especially today, I said in my eulogy, what happens after we die? Is that the end? Does it just finish in the crematorium or in the grave? And I came across this wonderful passage, which I had forgotten about, in the last of C.S. Lewis's little books, The Last Battle. Probably, how many of you read The Last Battle? Quite a few of you. Well, you, you may or may not remember this, and I'll have to read it off the screen because it's something. Too small. So this is Lewis, and as he spoke, this is Aslan they're talking about, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. This is Lewis imagining, in his amazing imagination, what heaven really might be like. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all the adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. In other words, this life we're living now is really just the cover and the title page. and pales into insignificance against the wonders that we're going to experience when we go to be with the Lord. Now at last they were beginning chapter one, one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and which every chapter is better 
than the one before. That's Lewis's wonderful imagination. And Ron Hay, um, he said this, and I, I, I recommend the book to you again. Deathness does seem so final, doesn't it? Those of you who've recently lost or in the immediate past lost a loved one, it does seem so final. It is the great enemy which looms over all human hopes, aspirations, and dreams. In our time-bound experience, it threatens our deepest joys and greatest achievements. The resurrection of Jesus does more than demonstrate his divinity. It opens the gateway to life beyond this life for all who grant him their allegiance. All who grant him their allegiance. Even more than that, it is a foretaste and a guarantee of the ultimate defeat of death and the glorious transformation of all creation, not just us, but all creation. It tells us that death does not have the final word. The final word belongs to God, and that word is the word of life, and of a hope that soars beyond our time-bound horizon. The resurrection of Jesus, with the resurrection of Jesus, a new age has dawned. And a few years ago, I actually wrote a poem that was so bad that probably not many of you remember, but I want to repeat it, whack it up on the screen. What about Easter? There's a great and wondrous mystery surrounding Easter and the cross, the linchpin of the universe we know. It's about the death of Jesus and his resurrection too. Yet so many want to think it isn't so. But the real questions here are foundational, of course, of meaning, purpose, and a guiding hand. Did the beauty all around this earth happen randomly by chance? Or rather, did a loving father shape the land? And what's with us human beings who populate the earth, who kill and fight, wreck our glorious planet. You've only got to look at the news about war of Ukraine to echo that. Did we just inherit all the evil we display and now believe progress will overcome it? History tells us differently. The need for spiritual surgery is obvious from that day until now. The modern atheistic dreams of educating out our sin answer neither the when nor the how. And then on the next screen, the Easter bit. So our great God, he hatched a plan to put the balance right. One human had to die to pave the way. And then he rose to life again, ensuring us forgiven sin. For God, it was a massive price to pay. So Easter is no pagan fest, no chocolate lover's dream, but a celebration of a vital link. Creation, all redemption, is the story celebrated. It allows us to get up again and think, to move from condemnation, from depression and from woe, to begin each day refreshed and lifted up. So let's thank Christ for Easter, for the cross, and empty tomb, and with gratitude eat bread and drink the cup. Now, we're not actually going to have communion this morning, but that's what we would normally do. So I wrote that, and um, one Easter, I can't remember when. So what I want to do to finish, we could sing many wonderful songs, but uh, some of you have probably had the uplifting experience that I've had, and that is to be in a wonderful place like the Royal Albert Hall and, and listen to a, a wonderful choir like the Royal Choral Society sing the Hallelujah Chorus, which is at the end of Handel's Messiah. And I, I just want you to sit there, and well, you can stand up like they do in the concert if you want to, but it's just a wonderful expression of the, the glory and the wonder of the risen Saviour. Let's sit back and listen to this 